0: In 1999, President Clinton sent a diplomat to North Korea for an exceptionally rare negotiation aimed at stopping the country's nuclear development. That was the moment, this diplomat says, when everything could have gone differently. His account of why it didn't. It's Thursday, August 10th. From NBC News in Washington, This is Meet the Press with Tim Russert. It's 1999. Donald Trump is a potential candidate for president and appears on Meet the Press. He's asked by Tim Russert about an escalating situation with North Korea.
2: You say that you, as president, would be willing to launch a preemptive strike against North Korea's nuclear capability. First, I'd negotiate. I would negotiate like crazy, and I'd make sure that we tried to get the best deal possible. Look, Tim, if a man walks up to you on a street in Washington, because this doesn't happen, of course, in New York, but if a man walks up and puts a gun to your head and says, give me your money, Wouldn't you rather know where he's coming from before he had the gun in his hand? And these people, in three or four years, are going to be having nuclear weapons. They're going to have those weapons pointed all over the world, and specifically at the United States. And wouldn't you be
0: better off solving this really potentially unbelievable, and the biggest problem, I mean, we can talk about the economy,
2: we can talk about Social Security. The biggest problem this world has is nuclear proliferation. And we have a country out there, North Korea, which is sort of wacko, which is not a a bunch of dummies, and they are going out and they are developing nuclear weapons. And they're not doing it because they're having fun doing it, they're doing it for a reason.
0: Trump is being questioned because, like now, the United States and North Korea are at a critical moment in their relationship. Bill Clinton is nearing the end of his presidency and is sending Bill Perry to North Korea to try to solve the problem.
2: I'd start back a little earlier. We had a major crisis with him in 1994.
1: A crisis over North Korea's nuclear program threatens to turn war games in the volatile peninsula into the real thing.
2: And at the time, I was the secretary of defense under President Clinton.
1: The United States and the international community demand that North Korea open up its nuclear facilities to inspection. North Korea at first cracks the door open, then slams it shut. The nuclear and gambit leaves the North
2: in the process of uh, taking spent fuel from their nuclear reactor and reprocessing it to make plutonium.
0: Why is that such a serious
2: problem? If they went ahead with that process at their reactor, which they had all the capabilities to do. They were done up with enough plutonium to build about six nuclear bombs. Wow. And we told them that we will not permit you to make that plutonium. It was pointless for them to try to develop nuclear weapons, because if they ever used them, it would be the end of their country. And we were quite serious about that. It wasn't an empty threat. They took it seriously enough that in their primary newspaper, they referred to me as a, quote, war maniac, unquote.
0: Wow. That must have been
2: So that, that caught my attention. Right. I had on my desk a plan to conduct a preemptive strike with conventional weapons against their nuclear reactor, which would have taken out all of their plutonium. But the North Korean knowledge that we were prepared to take military action had a lot to do with them coming to the diplomatic table finally, and we got out of that something called the Agreed Framework.
0: And so in 1994, they agreed to stop developing this plutonium.
2: Indeed, and they shut down the entire facility, at Yongbyon, which is where the reactor was.
0: And then what happens between 1994 and 1999 that leads you to go over to North Korea at the request of President Clinton?
2: Well, they were conducting tests of long-range missiles. And we were pressuring them to stop those tests, and they were not doing it. And so there was talk then in both the U.S. Congress and the Japanese Diet to walk away from the agreement we had made with them in 1994. But if we walked away from it, then that would give them the fuel to build the warheads to put on those long-range missiles. So that we said, President Clinton thought that was a bad idea. And he asked me to to go talk with the North Koreans to see if I could find a way of getting them to stop both the long-range missile and continue to stop their nuclear programs. I was out of office by then. I was back at Stanford but I agreed to come back temporarily in the government just for the purpose of conducting that negotiation.
0: Let's talk about this trip you took to the capital of North Korea in 1999. That was pretty unusual for you to have been, been invited and to have gone, right?
2: Yes. i It's a great honor to meet you.
0: I, met, I and
2: my entire mm-hmm. delegation are looking forward to meeting with you today. Yeah, The thing that was interesting about it is, first of all, I was there on a diplomatic mission, a mission of peace. Mm-hmm. But President Clinton, I think deliberately, chose me for that because I also was the face of military resolve to the North Koreans. So I was going over the, both with the feathers of peace in one hand and with the, uh, mm-hmm. the threat of war in the other hand. So it was, was, I would think, fairly called coercive diplomacy.
0: Coercive because behind those feathers were...
2: U.S. military power. Got it.
0: So at this moment, we're trying to understand this country, North Korea, and their motivations. You're one of the few Americans basically to have ever traveled to North Korea and met with its leaders. So give us a sense of what they are like, I mean, and what it was like. You, you get off the plane, and what happens in Pyongyang?
2: They gave us permission to fly our military airplane directly into Pyongyang, which is a major concession. I don't know that, how many other times that may have happened. Mm-hmm. When I got there, my first meeting was with the president of North Korea, who it was more of a protocol reception mm-hmm. for me, but also gave me the agenda of what I would be doing while I was over there, who I, with whom I would be meeting, and when that would all take place. But it did not include any military personnel. Hmm. And so I told him immediately this was not an acceptable agenda. I was the secretary of defense. I want to talk with your military people as well.
0: And what was his response?
2: He just nodded. But the next morning, the first person to came into the meeting was the top general. Hmm. So I got my request. But it was interesting. When the general came in, he said, this meeting was not my idea. (laughs) I was directed to meet with you. He said, I don't think we should even be discussing giving up nuclear capability. So he put it right on the line. And when I pressed him as to why he felt that way, he said it's for their security, to sustain the regime against international threats. I said, like who? And he just looked directly at me and said, like you, hmm. the United States is the primary threat against North Korea.
0: So he bluntly said to you that n- that nuclear weapons, possessing them and having the ability to use them against a country like the United States was well, yeah, an insurance right. policy against
2: attack. It was, their deterrence. it was their deterrence policy. We ought to understand that because we have a deterrence policy too. And in the ensuing discussion, it was pretty clear that he believed, I think correctly, that the United States and South Korea together had an overwhelming advantage, military advantage over the North Korean military forces and that any conflict with South Korea, with, with the United States on the side of South Korea, would every end in the defeat of North Korea, and that he saw the nuclear weapons as an offset to that disadvantage that they had.
0: So if your counterpart in these talks in North Korea is essentially right, that nuclear weapons are an insurance policy against the United States, and if we're a threat to North Korea, what do you offer them to get them to stop developing nuclear weapons? Can you offer them anything?
2: a package of both carrots and sticks. The carrots were pretty impressive. They involved some economic incentives, which were coming from our allies, South Korea and Japan. Mm-hmm. But the most important, I discovered, the most important incentives came from the United States, which were not economic at all, but more in the form of security assurances. And I would say the biggest take I got from my discussions with the North Koreans while I was over there is that while they were interested in the economic improvement, their number one issue then, and I believe now, is security, namely assuring that the regime could stay in power, ensuring that the Kim dynasty would continue on. That manifested itself in all of our discussions. You know, I could easily see what they were interested in and what they were not interested in and what they put high values on.
0: And what they put high value on was making sure that their regime stayed in place. That's interesting. And I should know this, but did they agree to this agreement that you offered or not? Yeah. They Uh, did.
2: They agreed to it in principle when I was over there. And then that was followed up with two different sets of visits. First of all, the then dictator, you might say, of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, went to a a unique visit to China, the only time he's ever done that, and talked with the Chinese government, visited the Shanghai Stock Exchange, did many things, which suggested that he was willing to consider bringing North Korea in as a normal nation again instead of a rogue nation. And then they sent their top military man, Kim Jong-il dispatched his top military man to, to come in, to Washington for discussion with the president. Wow! And he uh, directed him to stop off at San Francisco and meet with me at Stanford, which he did. Wow. He asked if I would show him around some of the high-tech companies in the area, which I did. Fascinating. And, incidentally, I took him to the companies, which the presidents, the directors of the companies were Korean-Americans, who no longer could speak in Korean to him. But also, it was a subtle symbol of how well Koreans were doing in hmm. America. I had a, hosted a dinner for him at Stanford that evening. Again, I had people at the dinner who were Korean-Americans who could speak to him in his language. Hmm. We had a very good meeting. And then I went with him back to Washington.
0: We gathered tonight in friendship with all the people of Korea to greet Chairman Kim Jong-il's special envoy, Vice Marshal Joe Myung-nok.
2: Well, he met... Secretary Albright.
0: This first ever high-level visit from Pyongyang is another remarkable development in what has been a remarkable period.
2: And then eventually with with President Clinton. And those meetings all went very well. We were on, I'd say, the verge of having a formal agreement between Clinton and uh, Kim Jong-il. This sounds
0: like a very big success.
2: It was a big success, but this success occurred, I might point out to you, in mid-October of 2000. And you know, a funny thing happened two weeks after that, which is called a U.S. election. Hmm. NBC News projects that George Bush, it's been a night of first giving it to Al Gore, then taking it away on the part of the networks. George Herbert, George Walker Bush, the new president of the United States, the governor of Texas. When President Bush came in office, he called off all discussions of North Korea. He canceled the meeting. He cut off the the agreements. Wow. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. And we went two years without any discussions at all with the North.
0: So you were so close to a potentially geopolitically game-changing agreement. Very, very close. Uh, You You must have been incredibly disappointed in that. Did they explain the logic of walking away from all of what you're describing as, as progress towards what seems like a shared goal of, a, of kind of a peaceful relationship between
2: No, I know for a fact that the Vice President Dick Cheney was very much, first of all, very much opposed to the agreement we already had, the so-called agreed framework, and wanted to terminate that. Hmm. And secondly, we did not believe that these discussions that we had were worth pursuing. They wanted to take a harder line on dealing with North Korea.
0: So, Mr. Perry, can you trace for me, from your perspective, how we get from 2000... When you were touring around this North Korean in California to where we are now, which seems like, like a low point in the relationship.
2: Yeah. Well, this is the low point, but it's primarily because in the intervening period, they've actually built a nuclear arsenal. They mm-hmm. have about maybe 15 or 20 nuclear weapons. Right. The problem we have to solve is much, much harder than the problem I was set out to solve back in 1999.
0: So, as a negotiator yourself, How does that capability that North Korea has now change the negotiations?
2: They have much more to give up now than they did then. They have to value what they're giving up today much higher than they valued what they were giving up back in 1999. 1999, they were giving up the right to proceed on a nuclear program. Mm -hmm. Today, they're giving up a a nuclear program they have in hand with successful tests and and with 20 nukes actually built.
0: So it's, it's infinitely harder for, a, for the United States.
2: Have, we have to have greater incentives and greater disincentives.
0: So much has been made of the president's comments on Tuesday, President Trump.
2: North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen.
0: I wonder if you see the value in that kind of tough language, given how serious this is.
2: Uh, no, I don't see the value of it. I'm, I, I see the danger of it, but not the value mm-hmm. of it. We have a long historical precedent of how we deal with statements about nuclear weapons, and I think there's a reason for that. First of all, I see the present statement as a threat of nuclear weapons. I don't see any other way of interpreting it. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which this world has never seen before. The reason I don't agree with that is that threats historically, with every president, Democrat, Republican, have always been tied to deterrence or extended deterrence. That is, that we would use our nuclear weapons in response to the first use of nuclear weapons against the United States or an ally. And that's what it was for. And secondly, we don't make empty threats. That is, threats that we do not plan to carry out. Mm Because empty threats weaken our credibility, and weaken the strength of threats that we do intend to carry out. So I'm more in favor of the Theodore Roosevelt motto: "Speak softly, but carry a big stick."
0: Do you pinpoint the year 2000, which is where we started this conversation, as the as a critical moment that leads us to where we are now? Is that in in your mind? When yes, we
2: had in 2000 within our hands the possibility of coming to an agreement. With North Korea, which, while we can't forecast, would have held forever, it certainly would have had a major impediment on their moving forward on the program, and and moreover would have given them some incentive to try to become, try to start living like a normal nation instead of the nation that they are today. Uh, It took a lot of doing to make all those things happen, and you cannot relive history; you cannot really predict with confidence. But I would have a much higher confidence. That we'd be in a far better situation today than we are today had we gone ahead and consummated that agreement.
0: I don't want to ask you to predict the future either, but, but based on your experience, which is very unique, where do you see this all going?
2: In the direction we're moving now, I see it heading towards some sort of a conflict. Wow. Even a minor military conflict could do incredible damage to South Korea, And a major conflict, another Korean war, even though it was a conventional war, uh, we could easily see a million casualties. And beyond that, the very real likelihood that as North Korea started losing that conventional war, which they would, they then might resort to the use of nuclear weapons in sort of last-minute Armageddon, you might say. These guys are not suicidal. We're not dealing with al-Qaeda. They're not seeking martyrdom. So they're not going to—they're not suicidal. They're not going to conduct a surprise attack, a preemptive attack with the nuclear weapons on Washington, on San Francisco, on Tokyo, on Seoul, because they know if they do that, they will be toast. Mm-hmm. So deterrence does work with them. You might say that neither side is going to deliberately start a nuclear war, but the dangerous situation today is that we have created an environment in which could, which we would drift into some kind of a conventional war which could then escalate to the mm-hmm. nuclear war. So the danger is that we would blunder into a nuclear war, a war which neither North Korea nor the United States wants, but which circumstances drive us towards.
0: How afraid are you of us blundering into that situation?
2: Now? I'm very much afraid. I think it's a great danger. What we're doing now and what North Korea is doing now has put us on a collision course and nobody is doing anything at the moment to deflect us from that course or even slow down the pace we're moving towards that course. So we're, in a sense, we're sleepwalking into a war. And I think that's a dangerous situation.
0: So it sounds like you think negotiations are are no longer enough to solve this. That they, they were in 1999. No, I think we're but, not
2: moving towards negotiations. But they're not. I now. think negotiations are enough to solve it. But it takes, first of all, uh, an intent on our government to do that. It takes an, a willingness on a government to work cooperatively with the Chinese. He had a joint negotiation, not just a U.S. negotiation. And then we have to assume that the North Koreans would respond to a diplomatic package which had very strong sticks and very strong carrots. Mm -hmm. And the carrots have to include some degree of security assurance, which not only are offered by the United States, but which are confirmed and validated by China. There's a path forward. It's just I don't see us moving on that path.
0: I really want to thank you, sir. I appreciate your your time and your perspective and your, your work on this through the years. So thank I'm you. I'm happy
2: to talk with you, Michael, and thank you for the very thoughtful questions you asked.
0: On Wednesday afternoon, North Korea announced that a plan to attack the waters near Guam will be in place by mid-August. In a statement carried by state media, the head of North Korea's rocket command said that President Trump is, quote, failing to grasp the ongoing grave situation. Sound dialogue is not possible with such a guy bereft of reason, the military official said, and only absolute force can work with him.
1: We'll be right back. Wells Fargo is proud to be by the side of women and diverse small business owners leading the way to recovery. Their drive to pivot their business is showing others the way. Wells Fargo is donating roughly $420 million in grants through the Open for Business Fund that provides support to nonprofit organizations that support small businesses impacted by COVID-19. Find out more at wellsfargo.com slash together.
0: Here is what else you need to know today. The Times reports that investigators for special counsel Robert Mueller have raided the Virginia home of President Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, in search of tax documents and foreign bank records. The raid suggests that Mueller's investigation is expanding beyond Russian meddling in the 2016 election and may involve criminal charges over Manafort's failure to report overseas financial holdings. And
2: Congress goes on for two years, and part of the reason I think that the storyline is that we haven't done much is because, in part, the president and others have set these early timelines about things need to be done by a certain point.
0: The most powerful Republican in Congress, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, took the rare step of publicly criticizing President Trump as naive during a speech in McConnell's home state of Kentucky.
2: Now, our new president had, of course, not been in this line of work before, and I think had excessive expectations about how quickly things happen in the democratic process.
0: In response the president scolded McConnell on Wednesday as ineffective, escalating a dispute between the two men that began over the Senate's failure to repeal the Affordable Care Act last month. In a tweet, the president wrote, Senator Mitch McConnell said I had excessive expectations, but I don't think so. After seven years of hearing repeal and replace, why not done? That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow.
1: You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now? NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash daily. netsuite.com slash daily.